Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Renowned Emory University primatologist and best-selling author Franz Duval strongly believes that there is a continuum between humans and other animals. This hardly sounds like a revolutionary claim. After all, even the phrase other animals naturally implies that humans are well-established members of the animal kingdom. And once you recognize that and mix in the basics of evolutionary theory, you're clearly left to conclude that much of our behavior will be reflected in other species in one way or another, together with the distinct possibility that better appreciating our inherently animal nature will go a considerable distance towards understanding what makes us human. So none of this should be surprising in the least, but somehow, to many of us, it still is. My favorite phrase in your book, as Uh it happens, is I often feel that philosophers should be encouraged to take a pet. (laughs) When I was an undergraduate, uh, and I was very impressed by Descartes, here's this wonderful Uh man, this incredible intellect, analytical fellow, and he seems to be able to have figured so much out. And then I got to his part when he was talking about animals, and he was talking about uh, dogs and cats as automata, these these machines were just processing information and acting in some automatic way. Clearly they weren't conscious. Clearly they didn't have a soul. Clearly this and clearly that. Didn't he nail his dog to a table or something? (laughs) Not his dog, but a a dog. It's possible. But I remember (laughs) thinking to myself, this guy should get a dog. And if he had a dog, perhaps all of Western philosophy might have changed. Um, So I just wanted to start off by asking you, you say, I often feel like I would like to encourage philosophers mm-hmm. to get it. Have you encouraged philosophers to get it? <laughs> Have you actually had an effect on anybody? And, and I'm not sure, but, but uh, there are, of course, philosophers like David Hume, right. who was an animal lover, I think, and, and who said there was continuity between humans and animals. Actually, Darwin was quite a bit influenced by David Hume. But there are many philosophers who come with very strange ideas about animals, uh, as if we are not animals. I mean, we are clearly animals. And so they, they, they draw this line, very sharp line, Animals, everything is either instinct or conditioning. They hear that from scientists, of course. This comes from psychology scientists, usually. And so they go with that line, and humans are, are sort of separate category, which would mean that in the, in the few million years that we were separate from other animals, uh, that we did something very special, miraculous, which is, gets, gets us close to religion. So they, they still have that sort of that religion baggage with them, which right. is that we, something special happened to us. It's, al- it's also a, almost a very ivory tower type of setup. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're not only looking at the unique role of humans, but they're just, they're, they're so far from experiment, they're so far from actually looking at other species, perhaps even looking at other humans. They're, they're coming mm-hmm. up with these grand theories of the way the world is from their tower without actually going out and, and measuring it. And of yeah. course, you're looking at things very, very differently indeed. So tell me about bottom-up morality. Let's, let's go right to the, to the guts of well, what we're talking about. What do you mean by that? Basically, we are used to morality being presented as either coming from God and religion, and religion is sort of 
equal to morality. Uh, and then after enlightenment, of course, the philosopher said, no, no, it's not God. It is reasoning and logic that gets us to moral positions. Uh, but that's still a top-down view in the sense that basically it assumes humans don't know how to behave and someone ought to tell them or we need to at least provide the arguments for them of how to behave in a particular fashion. Um, whereas I believe that we have all the tendencies and possibilities in us to be moral beings and we actually have a desire to be moral beings in order to be accepted in our society in which we live and, and contribute to the society. And it is maybe necessary to set some boundaries for some people. I, I think that's probably necessary. And that's a top-down approach. But the basic tendencies are already there. And that's the bottom-up view, is that um, the neuroscientists say that, you know, for example, we take pleasure in doing good for others uh, because they can measure that in our brain, which, which is, a, a, of course, a major basis for moral behavior if you, if you have that tendency. But it's more than just... My understanding is it's, it's more than just your you have a particular speculation or you have a particular set of beliefs. I mean, you're grounding this in your own life's research. You're grounding this in not just humans, but actually looking at other species yeah. and, and being able to see evidence of aspects of what we can call moral behavior or one-to-one -one morality, and we can get into that. So tell me a little bit more about, about the reasons for your particular beliefs in terms yeah. of the primate behavior and, and, and other, other animals. Yeah, so if it was just humans, it would be a weak argument. If you would say humans have these tendencies uh, to be moral, um, but we are the only ones, you, you would have to explain where they come from. You would, uh, you would probably come up with explanations of culture and religion. But biologists, like myself, we believe that many of these tendencies are present are much older than our species. And so it's not something that we invented. And so, for example, caring tendencies for others, very mammalian. Uh, a sense of reciprocity, a sense of fairness, following rules and, and punishing unacceptable behavior. All these things can be found in other animals. And for example, the, the reason that the dog is man's best friend is because the dog is able to follow rules. And, right. and that's what we like about the dog. And so um, we have all these tendencies already in place. And, and all we have done in our moral system is sort of refine them, justify some of them, discuss others. but. I think it's all marginal compared to the basic tendencies. And when you look at humans, you've called humans these almost, I don't remember your expression, something about bipolar uh -huh. apes in terms of descendants, because you're look, in terms of our, our evolutionary descendants from, uh, so that the claim is, if, correct me if I'm wrong, the claim is uh, we're almost halfway between the bonobo and the chimpanzee. Is yeah. that is that a, a fair assessment? And they, and they, they exhibit quite different forms of moral activity and moral behavior, don't they? Yeah, so chimpanzees and bonobos are equidistant to us, so they're equally close or equally distant, whatever you want right. to call it, but they're right. actually very close. And they have quite different behavior, and, and I often feel we have a little bit of each one in, in us, because it's, it's undeniable that we are a violent species, and so that's something we share with the chimpanzee. And actually the reason that we have moral systems is, is that we need moral systems is that we are not a perfectly nice species. Right. If we were perfectly nice and always friendly and always sharing with everybody, you didn't need a moral system at all. Right. So we have that part with the chimpanzee and the chimpanzee can be quite cooperative but they also can be very mm -hmm. violent. And then we have all these things in common with the bonobo which is a sensitive primate, an empathic one, 
as is very sexy, like humans are also. Right, and, and se sexually obsessed, it seems, as well. Or maybe obsessed is too obsessed strong a word. Obsessed <laughs> is a bit of a strong <laughs> word, yeah. Because they, they have a lot of sexual contacts, but they're very brief. Okay. So, so it's not like they're, they're doing it the whole day. You know? right, they, right. they have a lot of sexual, little sexual contacts that help them right. get through their relationships, basically. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you talk about in your book how some people actually use, some people like to imagine that we're uh, the people who are, perhaps I'm paraphrasing, but wearing flowers in their hair and, and, and like to imagine that we're all peace-loving uh, individuals. They, they look at the, the Bonobo as the, as the classic example. This is the... Uh, uh, the poster boy, as it were. We must have been descended from these yeah, people yeah. because we are inherently good. Um, yeah, so there's some wishful thinking in that. Uh, on the other hand, you have the anthropologists who for years have been arguing that we humans, we got to where we are by wiping out everybody else. Basically, we are an aggressive species right. and we advance by violence. And uh, that's still such, such a popular view in anthropology that they don't know what to do with the bonobo because the bonobo is equally close to us as the chimp. The chimp fits perfectly with that line of thinking, but the bonobo not at all. And so they try to sort of marginalize the bonobo and say the bonobo is actually not relevant to the story of human evolution. But there's recently the genome that came out on bonobos right. and chimpanzees. Right. And, and, and a genome tells the story that um, we are basically exactly equally close to chimps and bonobos. So is that actually having an effect? Is that changing in the anthropological community? Are people now accepting this more and more readily? No, there's a whole debate going on there. For example, the evidence for warfare goes back 10,000 years, 12,000 years maximum. And, and everything before that time is speculation. Now, of course, there's many anthropologists who speculate that we killed and had warfare going on. Right. But we actually have no evidence for that. And if you look right. at the Neanderthals, who lived like 40,000 years ago, we have adopted some of their DNA, meet, right. which means that we did something else with the Neanderthals and just raging war, right. which we may have bred them out of existence, basically, which right. is very bonobo-like strategy, maybe. And, and perhaps not even a strategy, but just something, something that actually happened, something yeah. That, that, yeah. That, that just evolved. So are you, just to give me a, a sense of perspective, are you an outlier in this? Is this, oh, this Duval with his crazy bonobo <laughs> views? Or, or is this becoming more and more accepted within the community? Um, I'm one of the few people who works with both bonobos and chimpanzees. There's, a, there's one other person, which is a Japanese scientist who works in the field with bonobos and chimpanzees. And he has very, his name is Furuchi. It's very similar ideas as I do, is that bonobos are sort of peace-loving and chimpanzees are violent. And I base that mostly on my captive observations. But since I work with both species, right. I'm actually interested in the comparison with both. So I wrote a book, Chimpanzee Politics, which is all about power struggles and coalitions. And I think human males have a lot in common with the chimpanzee males. And, and I would never describe the human species as a perfectly peaceful species. I don't think we are. Sure. But, but I do believe that we need to take the bonobo very seriously and that it's very well possible that in, in the longer history of our species we were, were not nearly as violent as we are now, for example. So this would clearly argue for some sort of mixed ascendancy, this idea that we're, we're maybe not exactly in between these, but we certainly have aspects of, mm -hmm. of, of both primates associated with us. Um, let me get back to religion a little bit. So you talk about, you have a somewhat... Uh, different view, it seems to me, than, than, than many. You've made this distinction between top-down, somebody imposes the rules, this is how we should behave. Um, and the reason for the top-down view, uh, as you outlined, was this notion of uh, a veneer hypothesis or mm -hmm. a veneer belief that we used to believe not too long ago that humans were inherently bad. 
uh, and therefore we had to educate children and make sure they didn't kill each other, the sort of Lord of the Flies notion. Yeah, yeah. Left up to our own devices, uh, we'd, we'd wreak havoc and we'd all destroy one another. Um, and, and now you believe, it seems, or, or now the evidence seems to be coming in that it's actually quite different from that. It's switched 180 degrees, so there's yeah. this prevailing view that, in fact, we're inherently, inherently good. How did that actually happen within the anthropological community or within the, within the moral science community? Or well, it's an old view in the West. It goes back to original sin, basically, is that we are born bad, and if we work very hard, we can be good. Freud had that idea, you know, Freud, uh, civilization and its discontents was like, civilization basically serves to keep our basic instincts under control. Mm -hmm. uh, morality was looked at in the same way, even by biologists. Um, in, in the 70s and 80s, biologists would write books saying that we're not born to be altruistic, we need to teach to be altruistic, because otherwise right. it will never happen. And we need to constrain as well, yeah. presumably. But then around the year 2000, everything changed, and... Uh, the, the anthropologists started doing the ultimatum game all over the world, which is a game to test fairness, and they found a sense of fairness all over the world in all peoples of the world. The economists started doing games in which you could either compete or cooperate, and they decided that we're actually much more cooperative than they ever had thought, and they started calling us super cooperators. Um, the neuroscientists, they found that we get pleasure from giving. If you, if you do a charity test on someone in a scanner, the pleasure centers in his brain light up. Primatologists such as myself they started saying that animals have empathy and sympathy and have all the tendencies that we see in our moral systems. And so around the year 2000, all of a sudden, this veneer theory, as I call it, which basically is that we have inherently a lot of bad tendencies, but and we have this thin layer of morality to which keep it under control. Right. Yeah. So that basically fell apart, and and um, for a moment there was still some resistance, and people were saying that maybe humans are very special, maybe a very special primate, but now there's a lot of data that shows that the other primates have that same sort of tendencies. You, you talk about, in, in many of your other books, and, and even in The Bonneville and the Atheist, you talk about the, the relationships that you have with chimpanzees uh, as well. Is it, uh, there's a strong emotional attachment, there's, there's, a, there's a strong sense, there are aspects certainly of empathy that, that, mm -hmm. that you, you have there. Um, does it take... Could you make any sort of blanket statement about the level of empathy between chimpanzees and bonobos? Is, that, is it possible to say something with any degree of definity there or definiteness there? No, we are, we're just at the stage that we are allowed to talk about empathy in animals. You know, you, you mentioned Descartes, and Descartes, of course, uh, had its followers. And, and for example, the American behaviorists like Skinner, they had a sort of Cartesian view that animals were sort of machines, conditioning machines, basically. Mm -hmm. And so for the longest time, you couldn't talk about animal emotions. You couldn't talk about, certainly not about animal empathy. Even in the human literature, I, I met one of the pioneers of human empathy studies, a woman named Carolyn Zahn Wachsler, who told me that 30 years ago when she started her studies, she could not go to a conference to present on it because people did not consider empathy a serious topic. For them, it was classified with telepathy and astrology. No. Oh, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, do, do they deny that empathy existed? or, 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 it, was or a, it was a woman's topic. It was something that belonged in women's magazines and not in a scientific journal, basically. Wow. It was 30. a sort of soft, soft science topic. Now, of course, we consider it a very serious topic. 
But sure. at the time, um, there was resistance, even in the humans. So let alone animals, you would never get anywhere with animals. Sure. And yeah. there's this whole aspect of, of I mean, serious not only perhaps from a behavioralistic perspective, but serious from a neurophysiological perspective. You talk about mirror neurons and all, the, all this sort of thing. How much interaction do you have with neurophysiologists in, in, in your... Well, I, I know the neuroscientists who work on empathy. Empathy is actually quite a small field, and so I know most people who work in that. And the mirror neurons, remember, they came along in the early 90s, and the discovery was probably not known until the mid-90s. So, so that's maybe 10 years ago. Right. So now we talk about mirror neurons as if they explain almost everything, but they, they were discovered very late in the game. So let me get back. I, I promised to get back to religion because I, I wanted to talk about... Uh, uh, religion and science and the different mm -hmm. approaches and the top-down approach and so forth. Um, your view seems to be uh, this notion that uh, religion is a top-down interpretation of morality. Mm -hmm. There are many people of a scientific persuasion that have a top-down interpretation of morality as well, and we can, we'll get into that hopefully in, in, in a little while. Um, but intriguingly, we are, rather than looking at religion as something uh, which arises and tells us what to do, there is a sense of things going in completely the opposite direction, that we have this morality, sense of morality inside of us. It is, mm -hmm. in a way, bred for us uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and in fact, we are pre-programmed to some extent to accept a sense of religious morality. Is that a fair way of describing things? Or Well, religion, we now think, comes in later. So, so morality is where, um, is, is, is not the, religion is not the source of morality. Morality originated, let's say, in, in small group settings in, during our evolution. And I'm sure that before our current religions existed, humans cared about right and wrong and punished bad behavior and cared about fairness and so on. Uh, but when the societies got too big, which is um, like, like a couple of thousand people or maybe a couple of million people as nowadays, um, we could not maintain that system because the system was based on me keeping an eye on you and you keeping an eye on me. We each have our reputations. We try to behave as well as we can, but sometimes we deviate and so on and everyone keeps everybody else in line. But if you have a million people, who's going to do that? There's just no way of doing that. And that's where we installed religions, which, which provided sort of guidelines and provided a God who was watching us all the time. And, and I think that may have helped set up large societies. But this sounds all very pragmatic and utilitarian. If I'm a, if I'm a, a religious person that has a clear sense uh -huh. in my mind of, of what's right and what's wrong, I say, okay, you're telling me that, uh, that people knew the difference between right and wrong earlier on, and then we needed religion as a, some sort of police person or policeman mm -hmm. once we achieve critical mass. But, but, but more than police, because religion also binds people together. So, so religion has a strong binding function, and, and Durkheim, for example, we talk about the social functions of religion. religion and I think religion, the, the reason many Americans are religious is because it's a fragmented society where people move very easily from one city to the next city, mm. and, and they can follow their religion. They can, they can go to the church that they belong to in the other city, and they immediately meet another community. So religion has very important social functions. It's not just policing. And by binding communities together uh, in, in some sort of ritual, uh, but also shared belief type of system, uh, you get more commitment to each other. And, and commitment is a very important part of, uh, of morality. So I, I see that religion has a social function. I, mm -hmm. I guess I wanted to get back to this notion of morality uh, evolving. And, and mm -hmm. 
there is a sense, you said, where we know what the difference between right and wrong is when we're in small groups, and, and we can make that distinction. If I were somebody of a religious persuasion, um, just to play perhaps devil's advocate or yeah. whatever, I, my sense would be, well, you don't actually know that. You just know what works. And this mm -hmm. is my sense of utilitarianism. It may work in a particular society. You may have an evolutionary process where it's more effective for the society to be throwing old women under the bus or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not clear proof to me that just because something is efficacious in terms of uh, growing your species or growing your tribe or taking over territory or working in some micro-social mm -hmm. way, that it necessarily is linked to morality. Mm -hmm. how, would, how would you respond to that? That religion is linked to morality. No, no, no. That this, this idea that if I'm arguing a bottom-up approach, right? Uh -huh. If I'm arguing that, well, we all, all kind of know what's, what's right and what's wrong, and we know that from evolution. Uh -huh. um, and so in a sense, as you wrote, that we're pre-programmed for religion, right? We have this sense of, of morality before anyone comes along and tells us what mm -hmm. to do. Uh, I could argue, well, actually, we don't really have that sense necessarily, we just have a sense of what works. Uh -huh. That's quite different than looking at it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's quite different necessarily than saying that's good. You say it's good because it, it uh, we get, a, let, me, let me be more concrete. So if, if we're getting along, if I'm scratching your back and you're mm -hmm. scratching my back, we could say that th we're bred by evolution to, to get along because it's uh -huh. helpful to our particular species. But I could imagine a circumstance where it would be better for our species if I did something really nasty to you. Of course. And so yeah. that wouldn't necessarily imply that I had a clear sense of morality that's arising from evolution. Do you see what I'm, what uh, I'm saying? Well, I think um, the biologist looks at everything, uh, especially something that is as pervasive as uh, religion, uh, so religion is found in all human communities in the world that we know right. of. We look at that as must serve a function, otherwise why would humans have, a, have this sort of desire of sure. forming religions? And so the function that I'm at the moment exploring is related to morality and maintaining a moral system, but religion probably serves other functions. So, so I think it serves some general social functions, right. it gives some solace to people who want to know what happens after death because we have this sense of mortality right. that hangs as a big cloud over our head. And so, and so religion probably serves a number of functions for us that, that are right. beneficial. Yeah. And you talk about um, it being more natural, religion being more natural from along the lines of what you've just described. Yeah, so and then you can contrast it with science. Yeah, so religion is something that even very young children, you can teach them religion and they will adopt it and they will follow your religion and so on. Uh, if you want to teach science to someone, uh, they get their PhD when they're 33 or something like on average. Right. It's very late. And science also came into the game of human evolution very late. So, so there's, there's only one or two places where science uh, developed uh, during history. And, and that's very recent, just a couple of thousand years ago. And so science is probably also the first one to go. If, if our society collapses tomorrow, let's say the whole economy collapses and everything collapses, Religion will stay. I'm convinced of that. But mm -hmm. science may go. And science is constantly under attack at the moment, and so we need to defend it. Uh, I'm a big fan, of course, of science, but science is more vulnerable than religion, I think. You have this wonderful metaphor of science being a cloak that uh -huh. you can, that you can uh, wear, uh -huh. and, and perhaps just along the lines of what you were saying, just as easily discard on, on, yeah. a, on a society. You may lose it, yeah. Right. Whereas religion, I, I cannot imagine that we will ever lose it. We may transform it and it may change. I'm sure that's going to happen. But we are very religious in the sense that we 
we very easily believe in the supernatural and, and follow leaders who tell us how to live and so on. So there's this dis distinction between what we need somehow emotionally, socially, at some level intellectually, as opposed to a scientific way of thinking which may be beneficial in all sorts of other ways, uh, but is not nearly as driven to our evolutionary needs. Is that, mm -hmm. a, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and also I believe that many of the things that we think we design by ourselves, uh, by thinking and logic, were actually already there. And so we're very good at putting our rational labels on things, so let, let's say the sense of justice and the sense of fairness, we say that's something that we came up with. Uh, but these tendencies, it's based on much more basic tendencies that we can observe in other animals. So for example, in, in our monkey studies and primate studies, we study the sense of fairness. And when we first discovered that the monkeys have a sense of fairness, that they care about what you get versus what I get, and, and right. that they compare these things, and that right. they get upset if they get less than somebody else, um, there were philosophers who were quite upset with that result because they, they had decided in their mind, very top-down thinking, that the sense of fairness is something that we achieve through reasoning. You see, well, you have to get yeah. them a pet, you see. I mean, yeah. that, <laughs> Well, and actually I hear sometimes from people who have, let's say, two dogs, and they, and they there was last I, I met a lady who had a big dog and a very small dog, right. and she said the, the small dog insists to get as much meat as the big dog. So, so the, the small dog is compared, and I said, yeah, you, of course, you cannot explain to the small dog that right. he, small. Needs, he needs less meat. <laughs> so she, tricked, she tricks him by giving him many small pieces and give the, the big dog one big piece, <laughs> and, and, it, and it works. So it's a sort of interesting yeah, uh, experiment on dogs here. Yeah. And, and you talk, I mean, again, when you look at the sense of fairness, my recollection from at least your latest book is, is this notion that, well, this this idea of fairness exists on this one-to-one -one level that you were talking about, that one, one dog can say, hey, he's getting more than I am, mm -hmm. or, or a monkey can say, that this just isn't fair, and th there are all these interesting experiments that you describe about how animals are quite happy to get their reward as long as somebody else doesn't get a better reward, mm -hmm. in which case their reward isn't good enough anymore, and they yeah, have yeah. to, th th this sort of sense. But you make a distinction between uh, that, w what you call one-to-one -one sense of morality, and then a larger community concern, this idea of, yeah. of, of things happening on a, on a communal level, which seems more uh, typically human, or at least it seems like, yeah. uh, well, there are perhaps instances of that. So tell me a little bit more about that, but there are more instances of that. Yeah, so the one-on-one -on -one morality is I want to maintain a good relationship with you. I look out for my own interests, but I also look out for your interests, and, and we sort of have a good relationship, and, and I will repair the relationship if we get into a fight. Um, I will help you if you're down, and you will help me if I'm down, reciprocity. That's one-on-one -on -one morality, and I think there's many good signs for that in the primates and, and in other animals. Community concern is that I'm not just worried about you and me, I'm worried about my whole environment, my right. whole society in which I live, and I worry about is, is there fairness in my society? What kind of rules do we follow? Are they the right rules and so on? Well, at that level, I think we humans, we take off very differently and, and we, we are capable of, of taking that sort of overview approach, but not many animals do, in my opinion. Are there some others? Do you have some, some examples? There are examples in chimpanzees. For example, chimpanzee adult males, the alpha male, he will break up fights, for example. 
and he does so impartially. He's not supporting his friends. Right. His best friend may be attacking a female. He's going to defend the female against his best friend. So that's in the best interest of the whole group. Yeah, so he, he shows, and it's a very important function. We've done experiments where we remove alpha males from groups. You get, you get chaos, basically. So this policing function, arbitration function of the males is important. Females may fix problems also. So, for example, two males get into a big fight. They're not reconciling. One female will go to one of the males and take him by the arm and move him to the other and, right. and get them to reconcile. Now, in order to do these things, that female needs to have some sort of conception of what is good for her society. Right. It's probably good if these males stop fighting. And, and so I do see the first signs of community concern, but I would say we humans, we take that much further. We, so for example, if I walk in my neighborhood and I see someone breaking into a house, even if it's not my house, and I, 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 I'm not interested, as far as I'm concerned, in what happens there, I would still call the police, because I, I don't want people breaking into sure. houses in my neighborhood. Sure. And so I have a, a certain concern about the neighborhood as a whole, because I live in that neighborhood. Yeah. And I think we humans, so I'm not saying that community concern is selfless. I think there's a lot of selfish interest involved in me worrying about how my community functions. Right. And, and the argument is that this is part of, part of us, part of our heritage, part of the way we look at the world. We can describe it, perhaps, as some people do, by invoking a golden rule or some level of morality. Uh, but that's not really, uh, so as the argument goes, that's not really what's going on. You're, uh -huh. not, you're not calling the cops because a little bell goes off and you think, ah, golden rule, right, do unto <laughs> others as you would like to do unto you. That, that's uh -huh. just a description that other people yeah, are yeah. doing from the top yeah, down. Yeah, that's yeah. the argument, right? Yeah, yeah, and the golden rule and the Ten Commandments and all these sort of summaries of normative ethics, I think they are imperfect, but, but they help us a little bit. They, they tell us, well, um, uh, they give us some sort of guidelines of which direction we want to go in our moral system. But do they help us? I mean, if the argument is... Um, our morality comes from another level. Our mor morality is, as you say, bottom up. Mm -hmm. Then it's somewhat confusing if I get told, well, actually, no. And this, is, this is tied to this, maybe this veneer idea and, and sin and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Actually, no. It's not that we're intrinsically good. It's not that we intrinsically have a sense of morality. In fact, we're evil. We're sinners. We're mm -hmm. lousy people. We have to be told the difference between right and wrong. Uh, yeah, we have yeah. to go to this person and listen to that person. And, and, and arguably, it's, it's somewhat dangerous to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't you say? I mean, it, Well, it, these rules, like the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule, I think they're post hoc summaries. So we use them, if, if you want to explain to a child, so for example, you want to explain how to live a moral life, you may bring up the Golden Rule. That doesn't mean that the child, when it grows up, is going to, each time something happens, think, go right. through the motions of the golden rule. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but it's, it's a way for us to summarize and justify. But um, I think most of our decisions don't depend on the, that kind of norms. So I want to talk a little bit about this, the science-religion debates and kerfuffle. And you mentioned mm -hmm. that in, in much of your writings in this book and some other, some other books and some other writings. You yourself have been involved in, in a lot of this. And... Uh, my sense is you're, tr you're, you're trying to take a middle path, as it were, between mm -hmm. the extreme individuals on both sides. You have the neo-atheists who are banging the drum about how religion is pernicious and it is, uh, it is destroying our, our society or what, what we could actually uh, become. And you have people of a religious persuasion 
who are obviously uh, saying something very, very different, that, that there's not enough uh, credit given to religion and that these neo-atheists are the devil or whatever. I don't uh -huh. know exactly uh -huh. what they're saying. But, um, and so my sense is that, that, uh, that you are saying, no, 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 to some extent you're both wrong. Uh, you're, you both are looking at things from some sort of top-down approach and you don't realize that we have this morality inside mm -hmm. of us. Is that, is that a fair uh, summary, first of all? Well, I think um, there's two groups. One is, one is the fundamentalist Christians or Muslims or whatever, any fundamentalist who goes by the, the written word um, of the Bible in this case. Um, th that's not particularly a group that I can work with as a scientist because, of course, they would argue against evolution also as, mm -hmm. as a theory. Sure. So, so that's one extreme. But, you know, of all the believers in this country, uh, only one-third, only, <laughs> I think it's a lot, but only one-third is of, of that persuasion. And so there's a lot of believers who are open to science and open to evolutionary theory to some degree. And then you have the other group, um, which are the neo-atheists, who basically tell everyone that they're stupid because they say we are rational and believers are irrational. And if you tell all your enemies that they're stupid, they're never going to listen to you. And so I feel that they have sort of worn out their welcome by being so extremely aggressive. And I say, calm down. I'm actually more on the side of the atheists since I myself am a non-believer. But I say, calm down and don't insult everybody. And let's have a discussion about where morality comes from and what the role is of morality and religion in our society. Yeah. So it's more of a tactical issue? It's, it's more of a fact that they can't, that you, you support their case in principle, but the, the way they're going about their case is, is something that you find counterproductive? Yeah, I think is the strategy is, is very alien to me. Of course, I'm from a country where 60% of the people are non-believers. Um, and uh, no one blinks an eye if you say you're an atheist. You're not going to go straight to hell and all of this. And, and so uh, I'm used to an atheism, which, which I call apatism, where you really don't particularly care on whether someone believes or doesn't believe. And I don't personally particularly care whether God exists or doesn't exist. Um, and so um, this fanatism that, that it has sprung up is, is sort of alien to me. But you've, you've met some of these people. Uh, maybe you've met most of these people, the, mm. the Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's, the Daniel Dennett's, the, uh, well, the Christopher Hitchens before, obviously, uh -huh. he died. Um, have you had the opportunity to talk to them and say exactly what you're saying now and say, look, no, I'm, you know, I'm no, no, uh, uh, maybe with Dan Dennett, but, but not with the others. And, and I think it's a strategy that has been counterproductive. If, if you want to, for example, spread the word about evolutionary theory and why we think we have the evidence to support that theory, um, then it's, I think it's very counterproductive to, to trash religion as, as, because that's a majority of people, to trash religion as irrational. And so it ha I think it has been counterproductive. Don't, don't yeah. you think realistically, and this is my sense of it, okay? My sense is I don't think these people really care. I think it's a self-glorification game. I mean, I it's think possible. When, they, when, they, yeah. when they play, you know, I, 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 don't think, I don't think Sam Harris, when he writes these, I think he's an intelligent guy, and when he writes these things, I think he's just trying to sell as many books as he possibly can mm -hmm. and be as inflammatory as he possibly can and get as much attention as he possibly can. I mean, you mentioned this whole idea of these, these dog and pony shows. Yeah, right? yeah. These circuses. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no real debate that's going mm -hmm. on there. It's it's an act. It's yeah. it's a circus basically that they're doing to be able to to increase their own book sales and increase their own notoriety and so forth. That's that's my sense of it. I don't think there's an there's an but, open but, engaged dialogue that, yeah, that is but even I'm attempted. In, I'm interested in an open dialogue, and so I'm I'm interested in get 
as many different viewpoints to the table and discuss. And, and I'm not necessarily against religion. If you're religious, that's fine with me. As long as you don't shove it down my throat, you know, that's fine with me. And so uh, to have that open dialogue, I think we need to be respectful of all positions. Right. And, and of course, um, some of the neo-atheists, they don't want to be respectful. And yeah, that's what you get then. When you were talking about this idea of science being this, this coat that you throw mm -hmm. off, that it doesn't come naturally to us, the argument, it seems to me, should be something, perhaps ironically, somewhat related to what you also quoted Stephen Jay Gould as, uh, as saying, when he was, he was worried about this notion of uh, Darwinian fundamentalism, right? Mm -hmm. That we have to look at every single possible aspect of human behavior as necessarily uh, you know, preconceived and constrained by, by, yeah, yeah. by evolutionary means. It seems to me um, that that we can, we can look at science in exactly this way and say, right, it is unnatural. You're absolutely right. Uh -huh. And it is something which has uh, taken us an awful long time to be able to get the grips on. But we can somehow recognize that and harness that and use that, notwithstanding the fact that it's, it's, it's not as natural as some of uh -huh. these other things, uh, and, not, and, and be able to, to some extent, go beyond or at least sideways from our evolutionary destiny. Is that mm -hmm. a fair way of looking I at it? Yeah, I think we, do, we have a lot of behavior that is, um, you know, we smoke, we masturbate. There's lots of behavior that for the biologists is sort of puzzling. Um, and, and not every behavior, uh, even genetic characteristics. So breast cancer is genetic, schizophrenia is genetic. There's a lot of genetic characteristics that we don't think are particularly beneficial. And so this whole notion that as soon as people do something on, on, a, on a standard basis, you need to have an evolutionary scenario to explain it, uh, that, that's really not how I look at things. And, and that's what Gold was objecting to, is that everything needs to have an evolutionary scenario. Right. And, and we humans are very cultural beings, so there's a lot of stuff in our behavior that, that for some reason culturally came into being, and, and we don't know the reasons necessarily. Right. Yeah. One more thing before I leave the, the science, religion, uh, theater, as I, as I call it. Um, so one of the reasons why I'm so skeptical of this, that I, that I am actually mm -hmm. convinced that it's theater, is, is, that it's, uh, is that it seems to me to be strictly an American phenomenon. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that you're from Holland and, and <laughs> yeah. Holland 60% of the people, but it's not just Holland. It's, it's actually the United States that's the outlier here, so far as I can see. Mm -hmm. Certainly if you look at any other Western European country, you don't have this constant invocation of the battle between the, the, the neo-atheists and the religious conservatives. I mean, you go to countries that are traditionally uh, very strongly influenced by religion, uh, Holland, of course, in the Protestant tradition, France in the, in the Catholic mm -hmm. tradition. You, you don't have anywhere near that level of entrenched uh, theatrical debate yeah, yeah. between, between yeah, yeah. these people. Yeah, and yeah. and you, you can look at uh, various places in Asia. You can go much further afield. What, what is it about this part of the world? What is it about the United States that... Uh, that means that not only do you have such a receptor capacity for all of that, but you also have these constant issues about evolution being overthrown and creationism. I mean, what is it about this place that, that, that necessitates all of this? Stuff I understand that actually the evolution debate, there was not much debate before the 1920s. And of course, evolutionary hmm. theory is quite a bit older than That's that. That's interesting. And that, and that it somehow was manufactured as an issue, basically. Um, so who, who manufactured it? How did, how did that happen? I, I don't know how that happened. I, uh, I don't know how, how it came about to be an issue. But before that time, it was apparently not a big issue. And so um, 
yeah, the sort of uh, radicalization maybe of, of positions. And of course also puzzling that two of the four neo-atheists that are so active in this country are not actually Americans, they are British. Sure. And, and the Brits have, of course, a very long tradition of being anti-Catholic, which goes back to Henry VIII. And maybe that's part of the story. I don't know how that figures in there, but um, they hate the Pope and they hate Catholicism. Uh, yeah, but there's a, much, there's a much higher level. If you go to England, mm -hmm. there's a much higher, right now or, or before, there's a much higher level of, of, of debate, of understanding mm -hmm. of different positions. You don't get this simplistic yeah, yeah. notion. Of the, uh, I don't know how the debate is in the UK, but in, in Holland, uh, since my book came out in the Netherlands at the same time, uh, atheism was not really an issue. People, people were more interested in what for me is the big issue of my book is the origin of morality. People were more interested in that right. than when whether atheism is right or wrong or religion is right or wrong. That's not really a big discussion in Holland. But, I mean, they are, they are linked, I think. Anyway, uh -huh. if I'm somebody who is, and I'm not, as it happens, but if I'm somebody who, who uh, has very strong fundamentalist views, as you said, then I have a clear sense of what is right and wrong. And I'm not going uh -huh. to be happy with you saying, oh, no, th these, are, these are views that have evolved uh, yep. uh, from the bottom. Uh, I'm going to say, well, anything could have evolved from the bottom. Uh, I have a clear sense of what is right and what is wrong, and I ground my morality in this book or, or, or what have you. And there's a certain consistency there. So I, I in that sense, my position is much easier on, let's say, the atheist than on religious people, in, in the sense that, that I, I, I give the atheist basically an argument how you can combine atheism with other things to, to make it more interesting, because atheism by itself is not an interesting position. It's basically a position that God is, doesn't exist. But if you combine atheism with humanism, it becomes far more interesting. Or if you combine it with biology, as what I'm trying to do. So what do you mean by yeah. combining it with humanism? What is, what is that? Well, atheism by itself doesn't propel you in any direction. It, it only says, I don't believe in God. But um, then the question becomes, why lead a good life? Why are you here? So the existential questions of, of humanity. Uh, and it, of course humanism has tried to resolve them, but humanism comes actually out of religion. And so humanism has a lot of religious elements sort of infused in it. And I think biology is, is able to provide a lot of arguments of why we are the way we are, and why we would want to be moral beings in a society, and why we would want to have moral, moral society. So is there a sense that um, when you said you can combine atheism with humanism, or you can combine it with biology, can you combine it with all three somehow? I think so, yeah. I think that's probably the trend that we're going to see is that, uh, that humanism is going to be combined with biology. Of course, humanism has always put a big emphasis on human nature, but if human nature is also primate nature and mammalian nature, then you get a different basis for that. Right, yeah. right. So you shirked my question about why things are different in the United States. I'm still trying to get this because it's not just, it's a, it's a curious place because it's not just that there is this aggressive debate that's going on. If you just take a sample of people on the street and you ask them whether or not they believe in God or wh where their morality uh -huh. comes from or whatever, the numbers are completely different in mm -hmm. this country than they are to, to any other country in the Western world. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, not including Holland, but certainly also. Not, if not, not, also, not. if you ask people, do you believe in evolution? Right, the numbers are quite different than they I are. I say, isn't it forty percent or so who has doubts about evolution? It's a lot. It's a shocking. It's, it's a big number. Right, yeah. but you also mentioned. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna force you to give mm -hmm. me some speculation as to why that's so. But before I do, 
You also mentioned this, this idea, this is anecdote that you gave of Stephen Jay Gould in the, in the Vatican when, when he's, he's, he's talking to people who themselves had absolutely not the slightest problem with evolution. Uh, These were Jesuits. Right. Yeah. right. Well, Jesuits are always a bit advanced intellectually <laughs> compared to the rest of the church. But they, they had no problem with evolutionary theory and they were wondering why, where intelligent design came from and, and why that was necessary as an antidote to right. evolutionary theory. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm going to put you back on the hook. So why are Americans so different in this particular way? I think Americans are more religious for social reasons. That, that's, that's my thinking, of course. I, I have, sure. I'm a primatologist. I'm not testing this in any way. But I think um, uh, American society is very fragmented very mobile, much more mobile than what I know in Europe, for example, is that people move from New York to Los Angeles. And, and if you are so mobile, you need some sort of grounding and the grounding that is provided are the churches that they have. And the churches have a very important social function. And so if I belong to a particular church, if I move from New York to Los Angeles, I have immediately a community there that I can talk with who are like-minded and who will accept me. And uh, I think it has an enormous value for Americans in their society to have these religions. And yes, they translate that as I'm very religious and I believe in this and I believe in that. But in the meantime, I think the social functions are sort of driving it. So this is a, a consistent backdrop that, that, is, yeah. that, that the society has need for because of its mobility to give it some yeah. sort of uh, sense of... Well, some, some sense of constancy and, and, and be able to ground people, place people, give well, them context. And, and in order to belong to a church and then go to another place and again belong to that same church, you need to defend the tenets of the church. And, sure. and maybe you become more entrenched in the dogma of the church. And, and that's maybe part of the bonding uh, stuff that's going on. Okay. So I have this social explanation, but but you know, you, I'm just a primatologist, no, no, and I'm not testing this. Yeah. I understand, I understand. But mm -hmm. I, you know, this is it's all part of the fun of speculating. And, yeah. and you have thought a lot about people's reaction to morality. You have your own particular views as to where our moral sense actually comes from. You, yeah. you, you, li you live in the United States and you have lived here for some time. And you've, you comment specifically on this, uh, on the acrimonious and, and uh, often uh, counterproductive debates mm -hmm. that are going on here. And so of course you recognize not only that because of the fact that you see that, but because of your own heritage and you contrast it with the Netherlands and you contrast it with other mm -hmm. places that that it is different here. Yeah, and so yeah. the obvious question is, well, why is it different? And, yeah, yeah. and, and so, let, let, so let's move to your research. You talk about, one of the things you mentioned is you, you talk about moral sciences. Um, and you contrast this again, you, you contrast your, your view with Sam Harris. You say you welcome the development of moral science. You, your work contributes actually to moral sciences or the science of morality. Uh, you don't think he's going about it the right way because he's looking for some top-down rigorous uh, scientific display of where our morality comes from, but you are contributing uh, in your own way, or you are practicing this idea of, of the science of morality. What is the science of morality? Yeah, so, that's a, so I do believe that science can help us understand morality, or where it comes from, and maybe what it is good for, and why we developed it, and actually my work on primate behavior uh, gives some sort of evolutionary argument of why we developed morality. But I would never want to put science in charge of morality and, and tell that scientists at some point are going to tell us what the moral decisions are going to be in our society because science doesn't have a particularly good history in that regard. I think science has been abused as much as that it has been useful for morality. And in addition, um, that's not the task of science. Science is not in the business of 
deciding how you should live your life and, and, and why our society should take this decision or that decision. Science can give you arguments though. Right. So for example, if you, if you argue for the death penalty and I argue against the death penalty as a moral decision basically, we can muster with science, we can muster evidence and I can say, well, the death penalty doesn't really help or you can say the death penalty is very beneficial for society. There, science can really help in these, these things, but still the decision is ours, uh, ours and our society to make. So science, science helps by framing the debate in analytical, logical, rigorous, quantifiable terms from which we can... And providing arguments, uh, providing data, that you may want to have data for certain things. Right. Yeah. But I still, I want to get to this notion of science and morality, because I have a science background. Um, and, and for me, there's a, there's, a, there's a clear sense of when something is scientific and when something's not scientific. Maybe this is naive, this is yeah, yeah. naive popperianism, if you will, right? So I understand the science of physics. You, you, uh, you guess as to what the laws of nature might be, or some aspects of the laws of nature. You go, you test, you look for evidence for this sort of thing. And moreover, you make a claim which can be falsified, yeah, yeah. right? And you do the same thing for uh, biology. You do the same thing. I have my own theory of the brain. Well, let's go test it somehow and see if that's actually the way the brain works. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I think of the science of morality, I'm left lurching saying, how can I even come up with some kind of a test? Where, where's the falsifiability in this? I mean, uh -huh. what, what are we actually talking about here? So help me with this. So, so let's say I claim that, that humans are inherently pro-social in the sense that we take pleasure in helping others. Well, that, that's something that we can test. And, and that's something that's morally relevant. And, and when we start testing it, we probably also will find the limits because we are not pro-social to everyone. Right. We're more pro-social within the group and within the family than outside. So, so it also shows us the boundaries of our moral systems. And, and I think in that, in that sense, the data can help us. Uh, understand where our, these moral tendencies come from and why we make decisions this way and that way. Um, but it is really a jump from there to say that science is going to tell us what is moral. Sure, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. So there, there's a way on a, on a uh, you can do individual tests of various different claims mm -hmm. yeah. uh, uh, effectively. And has your thinking evolved in this? How long have you been thinking about this and how, and how has it changed or has it changed at all? Yeah, well, I, in the mid-90s, I wrote the book Good Natured, which was on the origins of morality, and I think my thinking is now quite a bit clearer, and, and, we, and there's a lot more evidence, actually, on primate behavior, on the, uh, the pro-social tendencies, the cooperative tendencies, the reciprocity, the sense of fairness, all these things, we have a lot more data at the moment. So what did you, just to summarize, what did you used to think, and what do you, what do you think now? How has, how has your thinking more concretely evolved? Uh, I used to think uh, that basically reciprocity and sympathy was every, all we had to work with in our moral systems, but now th there's many other findings that sort of refine it. And, and for example, this sense of fairness that we test in our primates, mm. that's not something that we knew anything about in the 1990s. Uh, so that's new. And, and are other people working on this as well, this, this sense of fairness? Well, notion? there's a lot of discussion about altruism and pro-social tendencies. And this came up basically in the last 10 years, is that when the, um, the economists found that humans are actually quite a bit more pro-social and cooperative than they had thought. Right. Uh, this is this game that you were talking about. I, actually, could I, could I stop you there for a bit and just ask you to just describe this game a little bit? Yeah, the, the ultimatum game, right. um, that's a game where, let's say, I give you $20. And I say, you can split it with your friend. 
but your friend has to accept it. If your friend doesn't accept the split, then you both lose your money. Right. And so humans, in the, under these conditions, they try to split evenly or 60-40, but um, almost evenly. Because rationally, if we were all, as, as classical economists used to think that we were, we were all rationally maximizing our utility function or something like that, um, then I, as the person who decides on what the split is, would give the most to me and the least to you. Yeah. You, as the rational agent uh, making the decision, would accept it because it's better to get something rather than yeah. nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that turned out to be actually not the way that people were acting. No, no. And, and then recently we played the same, exactly same game. Well, there's a variation on it because we cannot explain to chimpanzees how to right. do this. <laughs> but we, we played this sort of game with chimpanzees and, and they also ended up splitting equally. And so now we have reached a point, you know, initially I thought the sense of fairness was like in the monkeys. They care about getting less than somebody else, but they don't care about getting more. Getting more is fine. Hmm. But now in the chimpanzees, we find that the chimpanzees care about getting more and that some, sometimes chimpanzees will refuse good food if the other one also doesn't get good food. And, and they also play the ultimatum game the way humans play it. And so now if you ask me what is the difference in the sense of fairness between chimpanzees and humans, I don't know anymore what the difference is. Huh. It, it's not clear anymore what the difference is. And what about between chimpanzees and bonobos? Is there a difference there? No, I think bonobos are going to be... Bonobos, and, and am, I am I mispronouncing that? No, that's okay. It <laughs> doesn't matter. Wait, you should tell me. I mean, it's no, there's no official pronunciation, <laughs> okay. I think. So I think bonobos will, will do probably the same as chimps. But the monkeys, we tested capuchin monkeys, they, I think they are very egocentric and they only care about getting less than somebody else. They don't care about the getting more part. Right, and I mean, and that, that also makes one think that, of course, the sense of fairness presumably can depend not only on the species, but on the, on the particular type of, uh, I mean, as, as it can throughout human societies. We're all part yeah. of the same species, but yeah. you have different people who are more sensitive than others and, yeah. and, and so forth. So what future work do you have to be able to test this? Where are you going now? What's we, we're doing tests on cooperation in chimpanzees where we set up a situation where they can cooperate. Let's say two chimps or three chimps can pull in food together. Right but everyone else is present. So that makes it complicated because I can pull with you, for example, but the dominant male comes in and steals all the food or, or some low-ranking female comes in and steals all the food. Or right. th th there's all sorts of competitions and freeloading and stealing right. that can... So all the group dynamics are, are, are coming into play. Yeah, and so we want to see how they handle that. And, and uh, the literature claimed that chimpanzees as opposed to humans are not capable of dealing with freeloading because they don't punish. Humans punish, uh, but we think that in humans punishment is exaggerated in the sense that uh, it's not as important as people think it is. And also we find that the chimpanzees are perfectly capable of dealing with all this. And so they, they, we have thousands of cooperative pools and, and they deal with the freeloaders. They sometimes punish them, but most of the time they, they sort of avoid them. Is there a difference between these, these chimpanzees in captivity and the chimpanzees in the wild in terms of how they, how they behave and, and, and all that? There is a difference. Chimpanzees in captivity, they are more intensely social because they're always together and they have more free time on their hand. They don't need to travel all the time to get the food. Sure. So, so there are differences, but of course the psychology and the intelligence basically stays the same. So, so, so they express that in different manners because they live in captivity. So captivity affects the behavior. Okay, but but a, a little, uh, it's not statistically significant or, or that statistically significant when it's, you're... It's a bit like comparing humans in, in our current societies. You, you basically live in an artificial environment and, and we would still say you're a human. Your, your psychology and your intelligence is human, even though you live 
in this artificial environment. And the same is true with chimpanzees. It's still a chimpanzee psychology and intelligence, but the dynamics of the group are going to be quite different because of the different environment in which they live. And, and how many, um, is there a, so I'm, I'm admitting my ignorance here because I should know much more about this, but I don't know um, how sensitive chimpanzees and bonobos, I'm trying to say it differently now, uh, are in terms of their, their, their range. Are they, are they seriously under threat? Are there all sorts of, uh, presumably they are. I mean, presumably yeah, they're, they're, yeah. it's extremely difficult. The situation is really not good at all. So um, the numbers are declining. There's a lot of bushmeat hunting going on in the, in the wild, you know. Uh, Still, that, that hasn't been. Humans shooting them for meat, yeah. Uh, and so we used to think, for, for bonobos, we used to think that there were 100,000, but I think the estimates are now more like 10,000 or something. And that's really not much at all. And this is all, presumably there's some political issues going on with, I mean, you, you said that it's in the Democratic Republic of the Congo that mo yeah, most, yeah, of these, yeah, yeah. most of these things are now, right? So that yeah, so, so, you know, that's a huge country that, that's, that's as big as Europe. All, yeah. If you throw all of Europe together, you have the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So it's, so it's a huge place with a lot of forest, but the people now have guns with, with bullets, which they didn't used to have, and so it's, it has become very problematic. Is there any, is it, is there any way forward that's, that's possible through United Nations cooperation or through any, is, are, are there any programs on the ground that are, that are the, actually trying to, that are productive in some way? Not yeah, just there are conservationists who, for example, try to teach people instead of bushmeat hunting to how to raise pigs or chickens. Uh, or who are discouraging people or protected areas, but you know, these areas are, are, are as big as a country. So you may have a protected area as big as Belgium, so how are you going to keep people out of that? You know, so. so the problem isn't so much that uh, it's just the encroachment of civilization. The problem is actually the poachers. I mean, that, that, is, that, uh, is that correct? At the moment, that's the big problem. So, so the poachers and, and logging, because logging, for logging you need to make roads into the forest, and right. if you make a road, then people come in. Right. So, so all of that is a problematic. Yeah. Right, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's just as bad for bonobos as it is for chimpanzees, or is it? Is yeah, it? I think all the, all the great apes have an enormous amount of trouble at the moment. Yeah. Is there any sort of possible way forward? I mean, if somebody wants to help or contribute, or, or is there anything you could say, give, you know, support this fund, or... or or write your, write your local X, Y, or There Z are or conservation groups, and, and I think some of them are doing a good job in educating people and protecting certain areas, but uh, I'm pretty pessimistic. <laughs> many, many of us are pretty pessimistic about what's going to happen there. And, and, but you do most of your research now. I know you've done quite a bit before in the wild, but you do most of your research now with, with, uh, with primates in captivity, is that? I work almost entirely in captivity, but I have um, co-workers who work on bonobos in the field or who work on elephants in the field, even though the elephants for elephant work we do is also under human control, so they're not really wild elephants. Because I'm more, more interested in the cognition side of things. So the, and, and for that, you need to test individuals. It's a bit like... If you look at a, a schoolyard with children, you, you can observe them as long as you want, but you will probably not see how intelligent children are right. as a species until you bring them into a room and put them behind a table and start doing a test with them. That's where you discover how smart they are, you know. And, and that's the same with, with animals. Right. 
So you mentioned in terms of your future research, you mentioned uh, studying fairness, studying fairness in group dynamics. That's the primary uh, area that you're, you're focused on? We work, we work on gambling, such as such, such risk-taking. Uh, we look, look at so corporations. How does that work, gambling risk? <laughs> well, I, I can give you, you a casino. <laughs> I can give you two stacks of options, let's say, and, and if you take this stack, you get very steady rewards uh, every, every, let's say, half a minute, you get two rewards or right. something. Or I can give you this stack, and you get very unsteady rewards. And but some of them are very large. Some of them are very large, some of them very small. Cool. So what happened? Yeah. So, so what would you like? So I, I get it. I, I get the <laughs> test now. <laughs> uh, but but have, you, have you been doing this, or is this something that's in development? No, we're working on that at the moment. And so so we, do you have any data, or are these, are these guys, can you say I, that? I think there are data, but, uh, but uh, I'm not free to talk about that. But oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. This is not an official publication. I'm, just no, curious, no, no, I'm no, curious to know, are there, are there other gambling apes out there? Are well, there we are, for, example, <laughs> for example, we're interested in whether males are different than females, because in humans, for example, males are risk takers, right. more than females are. Right, but you're not going to tell me. No, I don't you're know. Good, that, yeah. I don't know Yet, yeah. Of course, you don't know. But mm -hmm. I mean, do, do you have a do you have a, a, a hypothesis? Do you yeah, believe? I, I would expect that males would be more risk taking, uh, some males at least. Yeah. Right. Mm. So you're doing the gambling. You're doing the fairness. What what other things? fairness cooperation, uh, cultural transmission. Uh, we do tests on sharing, food sharing. Still, you know, if, for example, am I more am I more inclined to share food with you if we both obtain the food? You know, or if I. If I alone, so if I alone obtain, let's say, on my own, I obtain a big chunk of food. Right. That should be different than when we together obtain a big chunk of food. You see what I mean? No. It, my sharing tendency. Oh, I see what you say. So we, we, mm. we, so we both get the food, but in, the, in one case we get it together, and in the other case you get it all by yourself. Yeah. So then I've earned it if we get it together. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've done this sort of thing with monkeys, and monkeys do seem to pay attention to that, and so we're now doing this with chimpanzees. You seem a very optimistic person. I mean, you seem like somebody who is coming through your books where, where you believe fundamentally that human nature is good, uh -huh. positive, this, this anti-veneer theory, this, this, uh, this notion that uh, it, it's almost as, uh, one almost gets the sense, and maybe this is inappropriate, but one almost gets the sense that you're, you, you come at this whole moral issue with that belief, with uh -huh. that very strong belief that, uh, that we are intrinsically uh, good. At, at some level, yeah, yeah. we are intrinsically cooperative. We're intrinsically good, um, and my guess is that you also believe that most primates also fall into that category. Is that fair? Yeah, or? I think the majority is like that. Yeah, I think the majority of primates um, is friendly and cooperative, but in each group you have a few. Sure. <laughs> and the humans also, you sure. have a few who are not. Sure. And and so in in our society, how do we handle these people? And and I think for primate society, that's also. Uh, the problem because there is a payoff for being not so nice you know the, being a bully and and beating others over the head can get you somewhere sure. and i think in human society the same thing happens but we need to keep these these kind of people under control and and that's what we do and i think that the primates do the same thing so is it fair to say that um there are two possibilities for for your worldview, as it were as i'm the objective observer looking at it i can say well Franz had this view before he even became a primatologist, uh -huh. thought that humans were, uh, were inherently good, and he looked at the, the whole world of primatology through that filter, or, well, he was perhaps agnostic or indifferent or didn't have any views whatsoever, or maybe even believed the opposite, and then he started studying primates uh, and has done so for this long and glorious career that he's had, and he's seen, my goodness, 
all this behavior which supports that particular view and has convinced him that that's the way we should look at it. Would it be the first case or the second case? Think? I think more the first case. I think I, I, I'm, I've always been inclined to be optimistic about um, humanity in general and, and I've always been an animal lover. So um, I like what they do. And, and, I, and I sort of got my confirmation for this view when I was put in charge of studying aggressive behavior because that was the big topic in the 60s and the 70s. Mm. Everyone studied violence and aggression, which after World War II was maybe an, op an obvious choice to study. But in that process, I discovered that uh, chimpanzees reconcile after fights. Mm. And so uh, it's, it's possible that I saw that, I discovered that because I was already inclined to see that kind of thing. But they did it. I mean, yeah, it's, a, they, it's, a, it's a real effect. They, they did it. And then we started documenting it first in chimpanzees. And, and the first reaction of many of my colleagues was, yeah, maybe chimpanzees do that kind of thing because chimpanzees do a lot of human things, but my animals would never do that. Hmm. And talking about monkeys, and, but now we know that uh, all the primates that have been studied do it to some degree, one, one way or another. So, so it is really not limited to the chimpanzee. It occurs in all sorts of species and elephants and dolphins and dogs and wolves. And, so it's really not limited to chimpanzees. Right. Hmm. So two more questions. If I were an omniscient being, uh, which sadly I'm not, I'm uh -huh. very far from, but, uh, but were I an omniscient being, uh, what sort of questions would you ask me for your research? What, what are the things that are really driving you to understand? Uh, what are the key items on your agenda to, gosh, if I only knew this, or if I had more data there, or, or this is something that I've long been struggling with? What sort of questions would you... Would you well, ask? there's one thing we can never get at, is what animals feel. So, so we... I'm a big believer that animals have emotions and we can measure emotions. If I can define aggression or I can define love. There's ways of defining this, but you still never get at the feeling itself, you know? And, and uh, the consciousness of animals and the feelings of animals are sort of, they will totally escape us and then I think they will forever escape us. Um, what about neuroscience? Don't you think neuroscience might be able to help us? Neuroscience there? might at some point, because neuroscience is already helping to some degree. So, for example, in the debate about animal emotions, the behaviorists would say, don't talk about emotions because we don't know anything about emotions, and emotions are probably irrelevant. That's what, that's what Skinner would say. They were sure. probably irrelevant. Sure. Maybe Skinner's irrelevant. Yeah, <laughs> he has become. <laughs> he has become. But uh, the neuroscientists then find, for example, that, the, that if you put... Um, a war veteran in, in a brain scanner uh, and you show him war images then the amygdala becomes very uh, active. If you stimulate the amygdala in a rat, the rat has fear postures and, and becomes very afraid. And so the neuroscientists say, well, the amygdala is apparently involved in fear, uh, both in humans and in rats. And, and so the neuroscientists started breaking down these taboos by saying, right. well, fear and love and aggression, all these things we can probably measure. Right. So I find that very interesting is that the breaking down of the, the emotion taboo came from neuroscience. Right. And it is possible that we can get at experiences like consciousness and feelings, but uh, I don't know how that's going to happen. And, and so if, if you were uh, all-knowing, that's what I would ask you is like, mm -hmm. what is really going on there, you know? My last question is a meta question. Um, so the answer may be very straightforward, but is there anything that I haven't asked you? Uh, that that uh, that's germane to this discussion, or anything else that you'd like to that you'd like to add, or you'd, you'd like to that, that we missed that that 
deserve any sort of comment or anything like that? Uh, no, that's, I think we went over a lot of issues. Is there anything you feel passionate about <laughs> that you're interested in your research or uh, in particular your research and what, uh -huh. you, what you believe and what you're interested in? And, and, and well, of course, one of the agendas of my research is to bring humans and animals closer in, in, in a way that that means downgrading humans a little bit because we have a very high opinion of ourselves and, and I think we're actually more animal than we tend to think. But it also means upgrading animals because we have sometimes a very low opinion about animals. And, right. and, and, and so I'm, I'm, my goal is, is a very Darwinian goal because Darwin was very much uh, someone who believes in continuity between humans and other species. And I strongly believe that also. And I think it's a very important message for fields like psychology and philosophy and anthropology because in these fields people tend to make very sharp distinctions like right. humans are like this and animals right. are like that. And are we moving in the right direction? Oh yeah, over the last 25 years it's incredible what has changed because 25 years ago if you would talk about the biology of human behavior, you know that's what Ed Wilson tried to do with social biology and he, he, he got so much flack for it. He was called a fascist because he, he was going to talk about the biology of human behavior. Right. And I think th that has completely changed. If I now talk to audiences about comparisons between humans and animals, there is none of the hostility that you would get 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and when you give public talks, uh, are these things better received in some places than they are uh, in other places? Or They're they very well received in the US. So, yeah. so you might think the US being so anti-evolution right. That's people would That's be people would be very upset, but people are not upset now. I may be you may be talking to a select minority of people. I may be self-selecting yeah. a sort of audience. <laughs> I suspect so. But you know, if I if I speak at a zoo and they, and they invite the, zoo, the members of the zoological society, I think that's a cross section of a city usually. Yeah. That, that's not just atheists. You know, there are believers among them. I'm sure, um, and this is very well received. And and I think. People see that um, whatever their feelings are about evolutionary theory, that connection between human and animal behavior is very basic, and, right. and, and they and they can recognize that, right. and they're willing to recognize it. Especially people who have pets. So I yeah. think I think the the message of all of this is that everybody should go out and get a pet, especially philosophers, but not yeah, just yeah. philosophers. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, thank you very much, Francis. It was a pleasure. It was Good. a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Good talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Anthropology and Sociology, along with separate discussions with Joseph Curtin, Fred Gittleman, Mark Maslin, and Ian Stewart. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.